0: following is a teaching message from shore community church for more information on shore for our teaching resources visit www.shore.org.nz now this morning guess what (laughs) we are going back to the future we are guess what series we're going back to the sermon on the mount just i know just when you thought we'd finished with that, so what what happened is that we almost got to the end of that series, and then we had these baptisms, which were awesome, and we needed to stop for these baptisms and pause. But it um, like I'm a real schedule person, and it just threw my schedule out the window. So um, I've been like walking, you know, off kilter since then. But um, so basically, this is an insight into my personality. But I could not preach almost all of the Sermon on the Mount and then leave this one passage unpreached, it would have haunted me for the rest of my life. So what I'm trying to say today, it's really all about me. No, not really. I hope that this will be a good word for you. In fact, I hope that what will happen is that this will be something of a refresher. I mean, we spent really the first half of this year working through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we've left it now six weeks or so, uh, but this, you know, to circle back and think about that journey, because that was quite a significant journey that we went on, and I know many of you were encouraged and challenged through what you were reading. And so now to come back and, and let's just think about what, what did we learn? What did God say? What were some of those themes? So I think this will just help to bring us back to that, embed some of those uh, ideas and learnings from that series. That's my hope anyway. So Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, verse uh, I think it's verse 23 that we're starting in. And Michelle Hayden is going to come and read this passage for us. Thank you very much, Michelle. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Thanks, Michelle. Um, I know for some of you, hearing that passage, it's a little bit close to home, isn't it? Because that was pretty much the weather report for your house uh, earlier in the year. I think when Jesus talks about uh, rain and storms and wind. Most Aucklanders are like, yep, we got you. We're good, we're good. That's pretty much uh, like for some of you over anniversary weekend, that was pretty much exactly what happened to your house, wasn't it? You saw the rain come down and you, some of you literally watched the streams rise around your property. And in some cases, the, the land around some houses came down with a great crash. So this is literally what some of you lived through earlier in the year. Uh, so this might be triggering some PTSD for some of you this morning, just reading this passage, I don't know. I'm not meaning to make light of it. I know there's a lot of repercussions from what happened earlier in the year. Uh, but all that to say, when we get to this kind of image of Jesus is talking about storms, we don't need a lot of historical background to that in Auckland, do we? We're, we're there, we're locked in right from the get-go. So what we can do is dig a bit deeper and try and understand the meaning behind this image, this metaphor that Jesus is giving us in this passage. It's a pretty simple story, really, this one. It's a parable. It's the only parable that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. But a parable is a short story that's got a deeper meaning. And so Jesus tells us this parable. And it's a parable about two builders. Two builders, a wise builder and a foolish builder. Uh, And by the way, the the word foolish is the Greek word moros. Just turn to the person next to you for a minute and just say moros. Yeah. You you know what just happened there, right? You're not allowed to do that in church. Now turn to the person next to you and say sorry. Yes. Yes. That is the Greek word from which we get the word moron. So this builder was an idiot. You're allowed to say that. Uh, He's a moron. So we've got the wise builder. We've got the moronic builder. Now, these two builders, they, they basically, they map pretty closely onto those two categories of people that we have looked at right through this whole series. We've talked about, you remember this, the crowd and the disciples, Right back to the beginning, all the way through. I've tried to keep these groups in mind. So the crowd, people that are just observing Jesus from a distance, people that are looking on but they're not really invested, and then the disciples, that kind of inner group that that really do want to follow Jesus. That's really who Jesus is talking about when he talks about the wise builder and the foolish builder. It's the crowd and it's the disciples. And he makes this pretty clear right at the beginning of the passage in verse 24. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into... Practice. So he's talking about people that put into practice what he's been saying. The crowd and the disciples. So notice both those groups, they both hear. Like both the groups hear, both of them are listening, both of them are absorbing what Jesus is saying. What's the difference between the two groups? One group, the disciples, they put into practice what they've heard, the other group, the crowd, they go home unchanged indifferent, unaffected by what they have heard. So you've got the crowd, and you've got the disciples. And this is the question that Jesus is leaving us with right at the end of the sermon, is which of those two groups are you in? It's the question we've been pondering all the way along. So then the question that comes out of that is, What does it mean then to put into practice what Jesus has been saying? We've gone through these three chapters. There's been a lot in this sermon. What does it mean to put into practice the words of Jesus? At at first glance, you could say, well, it means just to, to do what Jesus has been saying to do. All these teachings, all these things that he's taught us, it means just to go and apply this to our lives, right? To, to love our enemies and not judge people and, and give and pray and seek first the kingdom of heaven and not worry and not murder people and not hate people and don't lust after people and keep your word and do all the stuff that Jesus has just been saying for the last three chapters. And yes, that is what it means to put into practice the words of Jesus, but there is more. I think there's a deeper sense here that Jesus is talking when he says to put into practice all that he has been teaching. Think about this story. Think about these two builders. Think about these two houses. What is the difference between those two houses? It's not the house itself, is it? What's the difference? It's the foundation. That's the key to the whole parable. There is a dramatic difference in the foundation of these two houses. And by the way, when Jesus is saying this stuff, just keep in mind, he was a builder. Right? So he knew. He's not, just, he's not just talking to you as a theologian. He's not just talking to you as a scholar or as an academic. Jesus had worked in the construction industry. He was a tecton. Sometimes we think carpenter could have been a range of different construction skills, but Jesus had probably built houses himself. He'd built houses with his dad, maybe in Nazareth. So he knows building, and so he uses this parable to teach us some deep things, using this image of building. The key is the foundation that our lives are built upon. So the wise builder... The disciple builds his house upon the rock. So he's looking for a good foundation. He's looking for a good solid piece of earth. Places like Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, that would have been a good place. Uh, Inland, good firm ground going down a long way. Builders have got to be careful about their foundation. You want to make sure that it's not prone to flooding. Places could be really dry in summer. In winter, it's just a river of water, so builders have got to be careful. Get the right foundation, rock-solid ground. Drive those pillars, those foundational pillars, deep down into the ground. This is the wise person, and it represents the person whose life is built on the rock. And the rock represents who? Don't say Dwayne Johnson. (laughs) Jesus. 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 Right? Okay. Well, that's, Jesus is always the answer when it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the rock. That idea of the rock. Picking up on all this beautiful Old Testament imagery through the Psalms. God is the rock. He is my fortress. He is my refuge. He is my rock. Now Jesus comes along and saying, I am that rock. I am the one true solid foundation that you can build your life upon. So the one, this, this takes us back, right back to the beginning of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember the very first words? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It was three chapters ago, many months ago, but he, he starts there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to come to Jesus and say, I've got nothing in my hands. I'm empty handed. I've got nothing. I've, I've nothing in me that's worthy of you. There's nothing in me that's deserving of your love. There's nothing in me that can make myself presentable to you, acceptable to you, worthy in any way. Of who you are, So Jesus, I just come to you totally empty-handed, but I thank you that in spite of my sin, you love me. In spite of my brokenness, you have died for me. In spite of my inadequacy, you have sought me out, and you have rescued me, and you have died for me. And now I take my life, and I place it fully and completely in your hands. And I place my life fully. I put the full weight of my life on who you are, Jesus. So to build our lives upon the rock is to say, Jesus Christ, His life, His death, his resurrection is the foundation of my life. It means that the foundation of your life is not anything that you do. It's not your successes. It's not all the stuff that you've accomplished. It's not your gifts and your talents, your competencies and your abilities. It's not all the stuff that you're good at. It's not your accolades. It's not all your achievements. It's not all the trophies. It is purely. And simply and only the finished work of Jesus Christ, that's the foundation of our lives. That's what it means to build our lives upon the rock. It is to say, my life is built on the cross of Christ. It's not about what I've done. It's purely about what He has done for me. It's about His obedience, not mine. It's about His righteousness, not mine. It's about His faithfulness, not mine. It's about His obedience to His Father, not my obedience. And I receive what he's done as a gift into my life. It's like the words of that old hymn. Some of you know that one. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. It means the sweetest person. But wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. Some of you know it. Yeah, sinking sand. That's what it, To say it and mean it is the essence of what it means to build your lives upon the rock. So ask yourself if those words are really true for you this morning. We're talking about things that are so foundational to our lives and to our faith, but this is where the whole Sermon on the Mount comes to. Is your life built on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ? Can you say those words and mean them this morning? On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. You can build your life on a lot of different things, can't you? You can build your life on your career success. You can build your life on on relationships, even really good relationships. You can build your life on money. You can build your life on the stuff that you're good at, your own talents, your own abilities. You can make a whole life out of that stuff. And it might seem really good and solid at the time. But ultimately, Jesus says, it's sinking sand. And when the storm comes, it's all going to be washed away. Here's a question. What do you think the storm represents? kind of wrestled with this, where I've come to, and there's different views on this, but where I kind of side with those who take the view that the storm represents God's final judgment. Not just the storms of life. Like some people would say this is the storms of life when they come along, if you don't have the right foundation. Maybe, but I think especially in the context of the previous passage, Jesus is talking here about the final storm. Sometimes in the Bible, the storm image of a storm is used for the judgment of God. And I think that's what Jesus is picturing. There's going to be this day when we all face, in a sense, the storm of God's judgment. I know that sounds harsh, but every one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. When this life's over, every single one of us, one day, will stand before our Heavenly Father. And what's going to matter on that day? The only thing that's going to matter on that day is the foundation that you've built your life upon. It's not going to be all the great things you think you've done for God. It's not going to be all your achievements and your accomplishments. It's not going to be you getting to the top of your industry or whatever. It's going to be purely and simply. Have you built your life on the foundation of Jesus' blood and his righteousness? Is the cross of Christ alone the foundation of your life? That is it. And if you've built your life on some other foundation on that day, you will sadly be the house that has just swept away. But if you are the one who says, I've built, it's not about me. I've built my life. My foundation is Jesus and Jesus alone. On that day, God looks down and he sees your name in the book of life and he says, Welcome home. Welcome in. Welcome to your eternal future. It's the foundation that matters more than anything else. So this is so foundational for how we interpret and hear and apply the whole Sermon on the Mount. If you, if you get right through this series and you get right through the Sermon on the Mount and you think that all this really is is just a list of commandments to make you kind of a better person or to make you a better Christian, you've lost the thread. If you think this is just a list of rules Jesus is wanting you to keep so that you kind of go from being good to being really good in your Christian life, uh, you've lost the whole plot of what Jesus is saying. The first thought that we should have as we read the Sermon on the Mount is, my goodness, I could never do this. This is impossible. I I can't even live up to a fraction. I mean, Jesus says, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, thanks, Jesus. That's great. I'll put that into practice this afternoon. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Part of the purpose here is to bring you face to face with your own inability to live up to any of this stuff so that not so, that, not so that we feel guilty and ashamed, so that we cast ourselves on the mercy of God. And we hear him say, I love you and have died for you and you are mine and you're forgiven. The whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to recognize I can't do this, but there's someone who has done it for me. I can't live up to this, but thank God there's one who has. Thank God for Jesus, that he's lived this out where I never could and he's lived a life I never could live and he's died my death and he's risen again so that I can be free. If you just take this as a list of commands or even just a list of things to make us a better society, you end up with a really empty, hollow version of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, what you end up with is a form of legalism. Philip Yancey says this, The worst tragedy would be to turn the Sermon on the Mount into another form of legalism. It should rather put an end to all legalism. Legalism, like the Pharisees, will always fail. Not because it is too strict, but because it is not strict enough. Thunderously, inarguably, the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground. Murderers and temper throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves and covetors. We're all desperate. And that, in fact, is the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the absolute ideal... We have <clears throat> excuse me. We have nowhere to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It is, from beginning to end, a word of grace for broken, fallen people. And if we can come to God poor in spirit and hear that, then and only then can we build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ and say, it's not about me, it's about you. It's Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ alone, my hope is built. All other ground is sinking sand. So the foundation is what Jesus has been getting at right through the Sermon on the Mount. Is your life built on the foundation of Jesus and Him alone? Now, having said all of that, take a breath. There is more. I think if we only say that and we don't say any more, we haven't quite done justice to what Jesus is describing here. He is talking about the foundation of our lives. That's so vital. But he's also talking about what you build on that foundation. Once the builders laid the foundation, what do they do? They build the house. Build the house of a life upon that foundation. So I think there's two opposite errors to avoid when you come to the Sermon on the Mount. One is the era of legalism, which we just talked about, to say, This is just a list of commands to try and live up to. This is just about my own self-righteousness. This is my own effort to try and earn my way towards God. That's a problem. That's a major problem. But there is an equal and opposite error. You can go in the other direction, and you end up with something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Now, that is where we say, thank you very much, God, for forgiving me and loving me and reconciling me, and I have no interest in following you in my day-to-day life. Thank you God for the gift of salvation and I've got no interest in living a transformed life. Thank you God for the gift of holiness and I've got no idea what to do until I just get to heaven one day and then I'll spend eternity with you. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, is grace without discipleship. It's grace without any interest in allowing God to transform our lives. It's grace that saves us and then we leave it behind. And I would suggest that if that's you, and you see grace purely as something that was just a shot in the arm when you got saved, you have not really understood grace. You've not really understood the depths of grace. When grace gets a hold of our lives, it changes us. Real grace. When grace gets a hold of your life, when the grace of God, when you receive that genuinely, it starts to change you. God starts to change you. And if you remain completely unchanged, with no inkling of desire, To live a transformed life, then you've got to question, have I really received the fullness of the grace of God? Because grace works its way out into every corner of our lives. That's why Paul says the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. God's grace, once that foundation is in place, God's grace then gets to work and it does transform our lives little by little. Step by step, the grace of God works within our lives to change and to transform us. So when we say, Christ alone is the foundation of my life, God then says, now I'm going to come and build a house upon that foundation. I'm going to come and build a house. I'm going to come and build a life upon that foundation. That means that as you lean into God's presence, He begins to change you from the inside out. It'll always be from inside. It's always from the heart that God changes us. Not just about behaviors, it's from our heart. And God begins to change your heart. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. He begins to give you a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. That's the Beatitudes again. He begins to give you that desire for new things. Begins to take away some of the old desires. Begins to give you some new desires. Begins to enable you and empower you to put off some of the old stuff. To put on some new ways of thinking and acting and speaking and relating and reacting to people. Begins to Smooth out some of the rough areas of your character, begins to change, begins to transform. It's a slow journey, and sometimes it feels like two steps forward and five steps backwards. Sometimes you feel like you're seeing progress and then you see none for a long time. Sometimes you go through seasons where, in spite of a desire, you just don't feel like you're moving forward at all. But God is faithful. And as we build our house upon the rock, God does come and He does work and He does transform our lives. So when Jesus says things in the Sermon on the Mount like, Love your enemies. I think he really does want us to love our enemies. Like, I don't think he's saying that only so that you realize how bad you are. I think he really does want us to live these things out. He says, the one who hears my words and puts them into practice is the wise builder. When Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven, I think he really does expect us and ask us and invite us to be those who focus on things that have eternal value. When he says, do not worry about your life, I think he really does ask us and invite us to be those who don't worry about the things in our lives but can trust our Heavenly Father. He wants these things to take root in our lives, but the point is they need to be built on the right foundation. If they're just built on a foundation of self-effort and trying really hard and summoning all of our willpower, that's just another version of sinking sand. That's just another version of house built on the sand. But if that transformation is built on the rock of what Jesus has already done for us, then that transformation can be real and genuine and a work of grace in our lives. Gary Thomas wrote a great book called The Beautiful Fight, and in it, he says this transformation will wear us out if it is our duty in order to be accepted by God. But transformation is a life giving force when it becomes God's gift that calls us to respond accordingly. You see what he's saying? If you just go out there and you try and pursue everything Jesus has talked about in the Sermon on the Mount just out of duty, you're dead in the water. If you walk out of here and you just try and do everything Jesus teaches, and try really hard just to be a good Christian, you'll, you'll never get off the starting blocks. If it's just about you putting effort in out of some kind of duty, or sense of obligation, or worse, a sense of shame driven out of a sense of condemnation, it's such a failed attempt, even from the beginning, to get anywhere. But if you can start from, I'm receiving God's grace as a gift And it's grace from beginning to end. And out of all that God has done for me, I want to ask for the power of the Spirit to live a new life and begin to lean into some new ways of thinking and acting and being towards other people. And it's grace from first to last. Then God will come and begin to bring about change. It'll be slow, but he'll work from the inside out and bring real transformation into your life. There was a guy who lived in the 12th and 13th centuries called Francis. And he lived in Italy, uh, in a town called Assisi, and he was, Francis was born into a really wealthy family. Uh, his dad was, was a silk merchant, and he just lived in the, in the opulence of Italian aristocracy. He was part of the elite of his village, totally spoiled by his parents, had everything he ever wanted, all sorts of money, all sorts of gifts. He lived a high life, really, Francis. And then as he grew up, he was a talented musician, and he was a talented artist, and he had this Big, larger-than-life personality. Everyone loved Francis. Everyone wanted to be like Francis. So he was living the good life. And at a certain point, Francis decided that he would join this military unit in Assisi. Uh, there was a neighboring town, Perugia, and their army was threatening Assisi. So Francis joined in this little military unit to go and fight this other army. They went, <clears throat> they went out and they, they fought. And Francis and his army got absolutely annihilated. They got demolished. And Francis got captured, taken as a prisoner of war back to Perugia. But they didn't kill him because his family was rich and he had a ransom over his head. So they took him, they literally threw him in a hole for a year. This deep hole in the ground, this deep filthy hole. They kept him alive, but he just lived in a hole in the ground for a year. And in that hole, everything that he'd known in his former life was stripped away from him. All the prestige, all the social status all the wealth, everything. He just had none of it. Suddenly, it was, all, it was all gone. And it was like at the bottom of that hole, Francis began to find God. And he just began to, because most people think that was the beginning of several things that led to Francis' conversion. But he began to experience the presence of God. And in that place of emptiness, that place of total brokenness, nothing else, he began to come to see Jesus as the solid rock on which he could stand. He finally got taken out of the hole and eventually released, freed, got back to Assisi. And he tried to kind of fit back in to his life of, of luxury and his father's business, and it just didn't work. Kind of went in and out, and it just, he didn't fit anymore. All the values around that, just they weren't his values anymore. He was a changed man. He was being changed. He was being transformed. One day, Francis was riding along, riding his horse along. He was coming out of Assisi, and he passed on the side of the road a leper. And he says in his, in his journal or in his writings, he said, in, in my former life, lepers were the ones who disgusted me the most. He just hated them. He, was, he, just, he despised them. And th- these were people who were, were, were desperately sick, their bodies de- deformed, decimated by that disease. And on any other day, Francis would have just ridden straight past. But on this day, something stirred in his heart. On this day, it was the Holy Spirit just working in his heart. Something prompted him. Something nudged him. He couldn't just keep riding. So he stopped, got off his horse, and he came and he knelt down in front of that leper. And he took that white, leperous hand, and he kissed it. That didn't radically change that leper's life. And it's not like that one act changed Francis' life. But it Symbolized something that was going on deep within the life of St. Francis of Assisi. This deep work of transformation, that he was no longer the person that he used to be. Francis had this sense of God saying to him, Francis, I'm going to teach you to love the things you used to hate. And I'm going to teach you to hate some things that you used to love. And in that moment, he sensed it. And he knew that was God working. Now, I know that's a story from another time and another part of the world, but that is the journey that God will take you on if you are willing to listen to the Sermon on the Mount. First, he's going to take you into the hole. And that's God's work in our lives. He he will take you to a place where you recognize you've got nothing else, where other things are taken away. And you you come to see all the stuff that I thought was so valuable, so meaningful, all the stuff, everyone else around me, builds their life upon. All of that is just empty. And this is where discipleship starts, is recognizing that stuff is so empty in in view of eternity. It is so hollow. It is so meaningless that we come to recognize the only firm foundation upon which to build a life is Christ and Him alone. And then as we come out of that hole, God begins to work and change and move in our hearts and change us from the inside so that Just like Francis, if you're open to it, God will teach you to start loving some things that you used to hate. Maybe loving some people that you used to hate. And he might just teach you to start hating some things you used to love. Some old patterns, some old habits, some old things. used to be what you were building your life upon. God's going to take your heart away for those things. Yeah, part of your flesh will always crave those things. But as the Spirit works in your life, God will teach you to love some things you used to hate. And hate some things you used to love. And so I would ask you to think about what for you does it mean to kiss the hand of that leper? What does it mean for you in your own life? If you if you thumb back through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, of all the things that Jesus has been teaching, all the ways of being part of God's kingdom, what is it for me for you to kiss the hand of the leper? What is it that God's calling you towards? Maybe a person, maybe a relationship, maybe a new opportunity, something he's calling you to step into. Maybe a f- fruit of the Spirit, and he's saying, in this season, I want to work in your life. I want to produce new fruit, love, joy, peace, some of you, patience. What is it that God's putting his finger on? What are those things that God is saying, this is a season I want you to set some things aside. There's been some things you've been holding on to too tightly. There's these things of your flesh, I want to take them away. I want to strip them away. There's a time to let. This is a season for letting go. I want to plant some new things, and that means some old things are going to need to die. What does it mean for you to kiss the hand of the leper? That's the work of transformation in our lives, but it has to be built on the right foundation—the foundation of Christ and Christ alone. I'm reading Bono's memoir at the moment. That book, Surrender, it's a huge, massive book, but a few pages from time to time. And just this week, I was reading a description of how he talks about his Christian faith. I know Bono is a pretty elusive character. You'll have different views on him, but he talks about his faith. And here's how he describes himself as a Christian. He says, I'm a follower of Jesus who can't keep up. I thought, that's pretty good. I can relate to that. I'm a follower of Jesus who can't keep up. And it's like, man, I wonder if he's been reading the Sermon on the Mount. You know I mean that's it isn't it I'm a follower of Jesus but I acknowledge I can't keep up with Jesus I can't I can't keep up with this There's no way I can keep I can't begin to do that but thank God Jesus has gone ahead of me And so now because Jesus has gone ahead of me I can be a follower And I can take steps little steps baby steps sometimes it feels like backward steps but I can take little steps But the point is I'm a follower I'm not leading this thing I'm following. And the best I can do is place my hand in the hand of Jesus and let him lead me. So I don't know whether any of you, when you were kids, used to sing the song based on this passage. We're not going to sing it this morning. You'll be pleased to know. But that that fun little song, you've had it whirring around in your minds the whole sermon, haven't you? The wise man built his house upon the rocks. Let's stop right there. But you know that last line, the foolish man, and the rains came down, and the floods came up. There was the actions too, wasn't there? Rains came down, and the floods came up, and the house on the rocks went crash. And we sung that song, and you know, like and when on that last line, we all fell on the floor. The house, did you do that? Like, you know, If you were really into that song, that's what you did. <laughs> Fall on the floor, because the house went crash. And it, I, I, as I was reflecting on this, and thinking about this, and just kind of drawing this whole series to a close, it kind of struck me like that's, it was such a fun song, and we, we sung it, and we fell on the floor. And we... I didn't realize at the time, like, what a sobering message that song, that story really carries. We sung this fun kids' song, and it's fine to sing the song, it's good to sing the song, but there is such a a serious message underneath all of that. You've really got these two different kinds of lives one that ends well and one that doesn't end well. And that's a challenge. And that's an invitation. And that's where Jesus will leave you at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He will leave you with a very clear choice. He's not going to let you off the hook. He's not going to get right to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and then just let you get on with your day. He's going to say, in the end, you have to choose. Which kind of builder are you going to be? That's the question I want you to think in your mind right now. Which kind of builder most represents your life? Are you the wise builder? Or are you a moron? That's the only time I'm ever going to say that to you. (laughs) But this is what Jesus says. It was as confronting in his day as it is in ours. Which type of builder are you, really? Really? Ask yourself. Search your heart. Don't just give me the easy answer. You search your heart. Are you part of the crowd today? Just looking on at a distance, disconnected, uninvolved? Or are you here with the heart of a disciple? saying, I want to follow. I want to follow. And which of these two houses and foundations best represents your life? Are you the wise builder who is building your house deep on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Or are you the foolish builder? And your life really is just a house of sand. As you look at it, maybe you see it more clearly this morning than you have before, and you recognize, man, this thing I'm building, things I think are so important right now, it's all just a house of sand. May we be those, only you can answer that question, but may you be those who can truly say, I'm seeking to be the wise builder. I want to be a disciple and I want my life to be built on the right foundation. I want to be able to say on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. May we be able to say those words from the depths of our heart and mean them. May we cast our lives fully on the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus. And out of that foundation and only that foundation, may you see real transformation in your life. May God, the Holy Spirit, work within you to bring about real change. Something real, something new, something deep, something that's lasting. May he transform you from the inside out. That's a life built on the foundation of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we hear your word to us this morning and, and we have heard all that you've said to us through these chapters, through these passages throughout this year. Just in this moment, God, I want to ask that you would just settle on the hearts of each person here what you're wanting them to hear. Uh, Lord, for those who today look at, look at their lives and recognize that you are not the foundation something else or they're not even sure what the foundation is god i pray today that you would that you would remind them that they can choose today to make you the foundation of their life that it's not too late while they still have breath in their lungs they can choose you jesus would you fill them with hope and not despair that they can place the full weight of their life upon you, no matter what's going on. Lord, for those who, who do know you and who are building their lives on the foundation, Jesus, would you bring to their minds and hearts now the work that you're wanting to do in building that house, the next wall that you're wanting to put up, the next room you're wanting to add on. Would you bring to our minds, Jesus, areas of our life where you're wanting to bring deep change, and deep transformation. God, we pray it would all be a work of your grace. Just pray it would come out of our abiding in you, come out of a deep love for you and receiving of your love, God. Lord, if there's any way in which we're just living out of fear, condemnation, guilt, legalism, duty, obligation, would you help us to put a letter aside and breathe afresh into our lives, Holy Spirit, that we may pursue you out of freedom And out of love, seeking you with all our heart, just out of the overflow of the gift that you've given to us. Jesus, come and bring your presence afresh into our lives. Bring your spirit afresh into our lives. May we build the whole weight of our lives on you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.